Science Science Podcast, which lives here in the What's the Point feed. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell. In the first part of this month's edition, we talked about the big ideas behind Thomas Levinson's book, The Hunt for Vulcan. This is the second half of that episode, where 538 science writer Christy Eschwanden interviews Levinson about the book. Enjoy. Tom, welcome to Sparks. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, it was our pleasure. We really, um, as you'll hear in our podcast, we really enjoyed the book a lot. Um, the Hunt for Vulcan is its just such a beautiful human zigzaggy story about the process of science discovery. And I was wondering, for listeners who haven't read the book um, yet, that is, right? I was hoping that you could maybe just give us a quick overview of the storyline. Well, the story is of science working exactly as it should and yet getting the wrong answer and having to then dig out from that kind of, you know, hole in their in, in knowledge, hole in understanding to, to, to get to a, a better, more complete picture of the universe. Um, it starts with Isaac Newton, as lots of good stories in science begin. Um, he's the person who figured out basically the way the, the universe moves, how different objects interact with each other through the force of gravity, and then how they move as a result of the, the mutual attraction between, say, the sun and the earth or the earth and the moon. That led to literally hundreds of years of brilliant, painstaking, often very, you know, just incredibly intense and grinding and sometimes tedious work to resolve how our solar system actually behaves. Uh, and along the way, it's, it's, it, the great test of it was whether or not Newton's theory could predict um, the existence of things that weren't there. And, and it did brilliantly with the discovery of the planet Neptune. And it did again with the discovery of the planet Vulcan. And that's where the story gets exciting because, of course, you know, most people, I think, will say, what planet Vulcan? You know, not, you know, not, the, not the one that Spock comes from, but what is this thing in our solar system? It's on, it's on Star Trek, Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> um, and it's a hot desert planet and they have pointy ears. Um, in this case, the, the, the planet Vulcan is the consequence, the result of actual behavior that the planet Mercury displays, the way it actually moves around the sun. It's got some odd little wobbles. And under Newtonian theory, the explanation for that is, is obvious. I mean, it's really simple. If uh, something in the solar system moves in a way that can't be accounted for by all the different gravitational attractions on it, from Jupiter, from the sun, from everything... Um, then there must be something else that you can't see that's there. And that was how Neptune was discovered, by perturbations in the orbit of Uranus. Uh, and when Mercury showed the same kinds of wobbles and unexplained residues of motion in its orbit, why that seemed to mean, that should have meant, that, that clearly dropped out of Newton's theory as the fact that there had to be another sort of chunk of mass in the solar system inside the orbit of Mercury, which very quickly got dubbed this hypothetical planet Vulcan. I think it's interesting to note here that, you know, this, this, these theories that, that Newton had were working really well. I mean, it had a track record, right? Of, these predictions had a track record. And so it was seemed perfectly reasonable at that time that Vulcan would exist. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, Newton's theory, as Newton laid it out, was astonishing. It, you know, for one thing, explained the tides here on Earth. It accounted for the motion of Jupiter's moons. And as it was worked out over the years after Newton's death, it did you know, it was perfect. It really was. You know, it explained bizarre resonances between the orbits of the planet Saturn and uh, and Jupiter, for example. Really weird, you know, sort of ratios of motion. And, of course, once the planet Uranus was discovered by accident, uh, Uranus's behavior led astronomers using Newton's theory directly to discover planet Neptune. You know, sort of a planet 
as it was said, discovered at the tip of a pen in the calculation. I mean, this is a brilliant success. You, it just doesn't get any better than that in science. And so when Mercury seemed to show the same kind of, uh, of behavior, you know, there was 150 years at that point. This is, this is all happening in the 1850s. You know, there's 150 years of precedent there of Newton's theory doing exactly this kind of problem perfectly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to note here, too, that, I mean, there's something you said at the beginning, that this was science working as it should, and it just has so happened that it led to the wrong answer. But this is just sort of part of the scientific process, right? That's right. And for me, what made this something more than just sort of a, a footnote in the, the history of astronomy or, you know, a little article someplace when, when, you know, something was happening with Mercury or what have you, was actually what happened after the prediction, after an astronomer, French astronomer, great French astronomer, the discoverer of Neptune, in fact, a man named Leverrier, uh, did the calculation that suggested that because of Mercury's behavior, um, Vulcan should exist. What happened was, of course, people started looking for this hypothetical planet. I mean, Leverrier had, in fact, conjured Neptune out of the sky. So when he said there's something else up there, people took him seriously and they started to look. Again, all of this is absolutely standard, perfectly ordinary, you know, the expected way science should work. But what came next wasn't. What came next was people started discovering Vulcan. They started finding it. And there were something like 10 or a dozen plausible-seeming observations of Vulcan between its predicted existence, 1859, and about 20 years later. I mean, people really thought it was there. And you know, up to a point, even that's sort of ordinary. You may, these are very difficult observations. At the edge of your knowledge, you always you know, try and find something more. And sometimes, just in the nature of the beast, you're going to get it wrong, and you'll correct it later. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll try to reobserve it or something, and it won't be there. And you'll eventually come to the conclusion that it wasn't there. Right, right. And that's what happened. In, you know, that's what happened in Vulcan's case. After 20 years, there was actually another great eclipse. And during that eclipse... Um, a bunch of very serious professional astronomical expeditions were sort of placed along the track of the eclipse. And they were, some of them were actually setting out to try and definitively solve the problem, to observe Vulcan if it was really there. And in this eclipse actually was the last great discovery of Vulcan. One of these professional astronomers was convinced he saw it and told the papers and announced that it was there, and everybody else did not. And that was when the astronomer, you know, that was... That was when the astronomical community decided, no, we're really just kind of deceiving ourselves when we think it's there. It's a, it's a sort of confirmation bias kind of situation. And, you know, again, you can see this as, as just sort of part of the ordinary process of science. And maybe that's not such an extraordinary story. But what really took the story to me to the next level and what made it, you know, hold my enthusiasm for a whole book's worth of writing was the fact that you know, when you've discovered something is wrong and it's wrong in a way that raises questions about some of your fundamental ideas, in theory, in the way we're taught science in high school, you know, one blunt fact, one brute fact is supposed to destroy the most beautiful idea, the most beautiful theory. And here you had the most important theory in the history of science, Newton's, you know, law of universal gravitation and theory of motion. And here was something that didn't work. So I think it's interesting here. I feel like one of the sort of um, arguments that you're making here is that um, 
the unexplained sort of invites discoveries, right? If you're a scientist, you should really be drawn to those places where things aren't working as expected. Like, isn't this the frontier where new discoveries are made? Absolutely. I mean, you want to know, you know, it's, it's in the gaps that the great stuff happens, right? You know, you want to know what, what goes on beyond where the limits of your knowledge may be. Um, and that's the way we always tell it. It's kind of the poetry of science. But, it, you know, the thing I found both doing this book and then thinking about its implications and trying to match it up to, to contemporary situations is that's really not how human beings work. If a theory really works, I mean, that's the thing is, you know, Newton's gravitation really works. The standard model of particle physics really, really works. You know, it covers everything we can observe. And, you know, so I think there's a, a natural habit that probably is a good guide most of the time that when something shows up that seems to, to mess with that, the assumption is that it's an error or it's you've made a mistake or there's, you know, your instrument is busted or whatever it may be. Right. And so it takes a great deal, I think, to overcome the, you know, kind of intellectual inertia of working within a very well-established body of science. But even there, there's, there's this, I mean, the thing about the Vulcan story is after Vulcan was dismissed, after people agreed that Vulcan wasn't there, there was really no one in the astronomical community, in the physics community, for, you know, 40 years who thought that this particular anomaly raised a real question about Newton's gravitation. And, you know... At some point, you do kind of have to ask, you know, what does it take for you to, you know, what, what, what do you have to have in order to challenge uh, a successful and well-established body of ideas? Yeah, and I think this is a really important question because it really gets to the heart of, you know, how do we know when to change our beliefs, right, or to change our, our theories. And, you know, the thing that makes science so powerful is that it's self-correcting. But what you really show in this book is that that self-correction may take many lifetimes, right? It's not something that, that necessarily will happen, you know, over the course of one scientist's career even. That's, that's right. I mean, uh, one of the fun things I did while working on this book was look at, you know, uh, websites for science fairs and, uh, and, you know, like professors' websites about sort of, you know, science, the scientific method for undergraduates. And they really all say something basically like this. You have a hypothesis, you set up an experiment or an observation to test it, and if the experiment doesn't come out the way you expect, then you have to go and revise your hypothesis. And it's kind of like this picture of a, of a you know, like a, an extruding, you know, like a food processing machine. You know, you stick raw material in one end, you grind the handle a couple of times, and out comes processed knowledge or processed horrible sausage or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, that's really just not the way human beings actually think or change their minds. And what really in the Vulcan story became very, very clear, and I think it probably applies to a much wider range of problems that, that human beings try to solve in science and maybe beyond, is that, you know, the notion that just facts will change your mind about something important, change your mind about a scientific theory or what have you. Uh, and again, Right. I think we're living in a time that's kind of a demonstration of that, aren't we? Yeah. You know, facts alone don't do it. What, what has to happen or what had to happen for Vulcan is not that there were new facts. I mean, 
the facts never changed that mercury did what it did and vulcan wasn't there that was true for decades but what did change is albert einstein came along and he came up for reasons that had nothing to do with this particular you know seemingly minor problem at the corner of our solar system had you know just working for his own reasons he came up with a new theory of gravitation which we now call the general theory of relativity and you know it's a it's a completely different sort of cosmological picture newton imagines gravity as a force tugging between two bodies einstein imagines gravity you know proposes describes gravity as the you know changes in the shape of space time that are driven by the presence of matter and energy within it. It's a, it's a geometrical picture as opposed to a dynamic force driven picture. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a very odd idea. You have to get your head around it. But once you have that idea, once Einstein worked the implications of this out mathematically and rigorously, he was able to show that the reason Mercury behaved as it did was not because there was another mass lurking between it and the sun, but because the presence of the sun created this big dent, this deep well in space-time, and that what we were observing in Mercury's uh, orbit when we just looked at it was Mercury rolling around the sharply curved area of space-time close to the sun that we don't really experience much further away from the sun, say, here on Earth. Right. I always kind of think of it as, as like a, a marble sort of spinning around, you know, into, um, you know, some sort of vortex or something. That's right. I mean, the standard way you picture it is you stick a, you imagine a trampoline and you stick a bowling ball in the trampoline and there's a, you know, the trampoline gets a dent. And, you know, the, the earth is far enough out, so it's still in the flat part of the trampoline. But Mercury is right down there, you know, close to the sun in the dent. And it's motion changes because it's rolling around a much more sharply curved area of the trampoline or space time. Uh, than we are. You know, the broader picture of general relativity was really tested by that, you know, by that one calculation. It showed that you know it could explain Mercury, and then there were further tests like the bending of starlight around the sun, which was observed a few years later, and so forth. And we now accept that general relativity is the current best description of gravitation in the universe. Probably not the last one, but certainly currently the best one. Uh, and it supersedes Newton's. It corrects Newton's. That's wonderful. But the point here is that it wasn't the fact of Mercury's odd behavior that drove the creation of a new theory of gravity. It was, you know, really a problem Einstein was trying to solve to make his theory compatible, his theory of special relativity, his new ideas about motion compatible with what was known about all kinds of other things in physics. And it took a new theory to replace an old theory, not new facts to undermine an old theory that then produced, uh, you know, the impetus to create the new theory. Right. I, I thought it was really interesting, too, the way that, you know, Einstein, Einstein came in and sort of solved this problem, even though it hadn't been, you know, his, his intent wasn't that he was going to finally figure out this Vulcan thing, right? Like, this was really, in a way, it was serendipity, but it was also just sort of new ideas coming in and sort of standing in for old ones and, and you know, new observations and new theories coming in to overturn the new, the old ones, but not even necessarily, it's not necessarily that old ideas are completely overturned. Sometimes we're just sort of rejiggering things, right? And like, I felt like one of the central problems that, that you really examine in the book is sort of this question of, you know, when you have this theory or this idea, and then you have these new observations or new data that are coming in and contradicting it, like, how do you interpret it? Is that, does that mean the theory is wrong? Or does it mean that there's some extra ripple 
that's still waiting to be elucidated. So like the ripple would be Vulcan. Like, is it Vulcan that's going to explain, you know, that really our theory is correct and it's just this thing that we haven't observed yet and you sort of add in that little detail and everything works? Or is it that the theory itself like needs some serious revamping or, or just complete overturn? That's, I think, the hardest sort of intellectual and creative operation in science. You know, it's 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 easy in quotes because, of course, it's actually technically incredibly difficult. But it's easy to make an observation or a measurement or an experiment. What's really really hard is understanding what your measurement means, right? You know, you have to you have to design the observation so that it actually answers a meaningful question. And then when you get an answer, unless it's exactly in line with what you already know, which is useful but not terribly exciting. Then you have to say, okay, is this, you know, what does this mean? And, you, you know, you have to eliminate the simple things. I mean, remember a few years ago, people said that they were, uh, they observed faster than light neutrinos uh, coming off of the, the accelerator in Europe. And that turned out to be just basically an instrument, you know, uh, a, a problem of poor instrument setup. Um, so that's a, a really anomalous fact that could be explained by just a, you know, regular, ordinary daily life of science. These things are hard to do. When you get something that's more robust, where the observation, you, you do all the tests and say, yes, this really, really happens. This is, this is something that occurs out there in the real world. You still have this huge problem of, of you know, explaining how this thing could be. And I think always the first impulse is to incorporate it into an existing framework, maybe with minor changes, which, in fact, people tried to do with Vulcan. They, they tried to... You know, see, maybe the gravitational law isn't an inverse square law. You know, to, uh, the masses over the the distance between them, uh, the square of the distances between them. Maybe it's not two in that exponent; it's two point oh 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 one. You know, whatever. Some some very minor correction. Not not beautiful, but not inherently unreasonable. Except it doesn't work because if you do that to fix Mercury, you get problems elsewhere in the solar system. Right, but it's kind of the first the first impulse, though, right? Is that you have you have this idea, and so when things don't work, I mean, it's, it seems reasonable. Like it's probably not wrong to try and make it work. You know, it's when you you find yourself really forcing things because you're so attached to this this theory, right? And this sort of makes me makes me think of this thing that occurred to me while I was reading your book, and that it's just that we think of science so often as this thing that's just very concrete and hard and fast. But I think that you know the best scientists aren't just good at collecting data, right? They're also, they have a knack for sort of understanding how to interpret this. And there's sort of this art to science that I think is sometimes underappreciated. Would you agree with that? Oh, very much so. I mean, you know, you when you read scientists sort of talking among themselves, as it were, you know, right. there's, there's, there's this continuous talk of you need to have good ideas. You need to be creative. Uh, these things come to me when I'm imagining stuff. Um, you know, the, the technical side of science is very difficult. You have to know for certain sciences lots of math. You have to be very good at collecting things, perhaps, or you have to have um, really good measurement skills. Or, you, you know, in some, you know, difficult kinds of science, like, say, the study of gravity waves, none of the technology needed to measure a gravity wave exists off the shelf. So if you want to be a physicist of gravity waves, you have to be a really good electrical engineer as well or optical engineer, what have you. 
Right. And there's, there's a technical side, right, to this stuff that's, that's important to note too, that sometimes um, an important step in, in science that isn't sort of appreciated, you know, when you were looking back is the extent to which tools and measurements and sort of the technical aspect of figuring out the right instruments can be really instrumental, um, you know, to making these discoveries, you know, not just having an idea, but, you know, figuring out the right way to measure it and, and the right way to find it. Absolutely. I mean, what, a, you know, the, the key here is there's this continuous interplay and the creativity can go very much into the designs of the tools of science, but the creativity is also in sort of understanding what the right problem might be or what the right way to frame the problem. Or in a case like Vulcan, uh, thinking about not so much the specific problem of Vulcan, but the much larger problem of understanding what it is that gravity actually is doing in the world. Einstein's objection to Newton's gravity wasn't that it didn't explain Vulcan. It was that it basically ha- you know, created a contradiction with his ideas in special relativity, including the idea that the speed of light has a s- fixed finite limit. So you know, there's, it's, it's, it's a very fast speed, 300,000 kilometers or 186,000 miles per second, but you can't go faster than that. And in Newton's theory... You know, there's no constraint. Gravity flashes between the sun and the earth uh, instantaneously in, in, in if, it, if it does anything at all, right? Um, and so it was, it was contradictions like that that motivated Einstein to say, okay, I think special relativity is right. It really works. It does all these wonderful things. I can apply it to electromagnetism. I can apply it to all the things we see in nature except gravitation. Therefore, I have to come up with a relativistic theory of gravity that will encompass, you know, all the motion we see in the universe in the relativistic framework, not in the Newtonian framework. So one thing I found really interesting that I learned in your book is that Max Planck actually warned Einstein not to tackle gravity, right? That it was too hard. And he even said that if you succeed, no one will believe you. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, just the sort of challenge of new ideas and taking something like this on. That's right. I mean, it, you know, Planck was correct. You know, it really was an incredibly hard problem. Einstein worked on this for eight years, and he got it wrong most of the time. It was a very, very difficult um, kind of thing to do, to try and rebuild an entire theory of gravity based on geometrical ideas. I mean, it was just... Well, it's so interesting, too, because we just, today, we have this this sort of stereotypical, you know, we have the stereotype that, you know, we use the word Einstein, right, or that name is like a synonym for genius, and there's this idea that he was just sort of this lone wolf who was so smart and figured it all out, but, you know, he built on the work of those who'd come before. He actually sought out help with some of his math. You know, he struggled with this, too. This wasn't just some something that came to him in a stroke of genius, you know, one day as he was looking. I mean, maybe it did, but it it came after, you know, a lot of a lot of thought. I mean, he put some serious sweat and effort into this, right? Well, I think, uh, you know, with Einstein, sort of on the one hand, all the legends are true, and on the other, all the legends are false. I mean, he, he really did have he he had flashes of brilliance, and and you know, the birth of his theory of gravity came in one of those when he had one of these thought experiments uh, when he imagined a roofer falling off a roof and said, when he's falling, he won't feel his own weight. And that, for him, made a connection between two different ideas of mass, gravitational mass, what you feel as you're being sort of held to the ground by, by you know, the gravity of the earth or what have you, and, um, and uh, acceleration, what you feel when something is, you know, if you're in a car and you feel that sort of extra weight as you, you hit the accelerator. Um, and when he re- had that, what he called the principle of equivalence, that was the foundational sort of physical insight that led him 
to crack the problem of relativistic gravity. It then, from that you know momentary flash of insight, that sort of sudden vision, took him eight years to work out that what that would really mean, and he had help, and he built on the work of others. But so I think you can say yes, Einstein genuinely was a genius, and he was genuinely a slogger who worked you know as long as it took to solve a problem. And in some ways, that's you know as much a part of Einstein's genius as these momentary flashes of brilliance. I spoke once to Einstein's friend and biographer, Abraham Pais, and he said what to him distinguished Einstein was his just pure stubbornness. You know, most scientists, if they can't solve a problem in a year or two or three, will move on to something else. And Einstein didn't. He just plugged away. So I'm totally projecting here. I'm working on a book right now myself. And one thing that I've noticed in sort of the creative process in general is that there are different types of labor that are needed for it. And we tend to sort of fetishize the like those strokes of, of insight that that, you know, come, that's what makes for great, great writing. It's what makes for great science. But those are, you know, in between all of those are sort of the hard toil and execution and the slogging away and sort of, you get this great idea. And so Einstein had this idea, but then he needed to like figure out the math and like, you know, do all that hard work to make everything fit in together. Right. And you had this, this great quote in the book that I actually wrote down here. And it's um, Einstein saying that, that the state of mind that enables someone to sort of do this kind of great science is, is a quote, akin to that of the religious worshiper or the lover. The daily effort does not originate from a deliberate intention or program, but straight from the heart. And to me, this sort of spoke to this. I, for myself, I call it the obsession of just like latching on to something and not being able to let it go. And it's sort of, oh, there and you're thinking about it and sort of turning it over in your mind. Do you, do you, am I getting this right? Is that how Einstein was feeling? And have you felt that yourself ever? Yes and yes. I mean, I'm uh, <laughs> Einstein, I think, really felt that. He said things like that several times in his life. Uh, and um, he really found sort of losing himself in the world of thought and allowing ideas to work through him to be sort of the single best way he could live. There were lots of other things he did in his life, but you know you can see that at the at the times when he was most creative and probably happiest were the ones when he could really just abandon himself pretty much exclusively to his ideas. Um, you can't live like that all the time. You know, even religious you know you know ecstatics like Saint Francis or what have you. We're not always in these, you know, transports of communion with the deity or what have you. Uh, but, you know, when you do know that state um, and you know it's out there and you know that's where the good stuff happens, you try and get back there. And I very much find that in my own writing, that um, I'm, I'm also working on another book. Um, it's really fighting me now. And it's, I'm not in that sort of wonderful state where I'm in the place of the book. Writing The Hunt for Vulcan was like that for the entire time. It was the happiest book to write I've ever had. It really shows. I mean, it just, it's so, it's just so contained and it's so, um, you know, it's, it's a slim book, right? It's, it's not a long book. And it sort of occurs to me that you really sort of nailed this, you know, getting it the right length and sort of figuring out for any kind of project like this, right? The difficult thing is deciding what to leave out. And here you really sort of, got the story down to its essence that was not just the story itself, right, but the larger implications. I mean, at its core, this this is really a book about, and a story about the scientific process, right? It is. And, you know, I was lucky because the story has great characters and funny moments in it, mm -hmm. but it really is, you know, 
it's it's looking at the you know scientific process is, is the phrase I use too, but it's really about you know science as a human art. It's not about science. Right. As the, oh, I love that phrase. You know, it's it, it's not about science as you know these these idea you know this body of finished work that we you know drill into sometimes disinterested high school students. It's not about science as um, a body of results we use to build useful things with. You know, science does all that stuff, but you know. At its core, science is not um, a settled, a settled thing of you know a stack of equations and 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 lists of observations. It's something that people do. It's 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 a it's a gerund, not a noun, right? You know. Right, right. That's a great way of putting it. I love that phrase, and that that gets me to a question I wanted to ask. I mean, one of the things you really explain in this book as well is, is just how personalities shape the progress of science. I mean, there are some big egos here, right? I mean, uh, Leverrier, am I saying that correctly? Leverrier? Yeah. Had, I mean, this guy had an ego to rival Donald Trump's, right? And, and he was, you know, known to treat his underlings at the observatory sort of like slaves. And his biographer even suggested that he drove one man to suicide, right? You know, he's everybody's boss from hell. I mean, he was... Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to go too far with the Trump comparison, but you know, he was a, Leveria was a terrible manager. He was mean to people. He really did see winners and losers and, and everybody else, but him or most people, but him were losers. He was a vicious political infighter in, you know, French scientific circles. He was all these terrible things. Um, but he was also, uh, you know, the most uh, exceptional mathematical astronomer, quantitative astronomer uh, of the mid middle of the 19th century. I mean, he really was very, very good at one particular aspect of his job that turned out to be, you know, incredibly powerful for solving certain kinds of problems. Right. And I wonder, I mean, there were, there were so many big egos here and conflicts. And I wonder, you know, it, is having that sort of big ego an impediment to scientific progress? Are there cases here where it could have helped? I think that we sometimes overthink uh, science as a place that needs uh, not just skills and knowledge and, and you know intellectual capacity, but very specific kinds of people. It turns out if you look at you know sort of everybody who does good work, you have the full range of human personality types. Um, you have dedicated family men like Niels Bohr. You have, um, you know, incredibly obsessive, focused people like uh, Marie Curie, who was utterly dedicated to the work. And you have people who are capable of, you know, a very wide range of 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 interests and ideas that can do, you know, much more than much more than that. Uh, you know, people who are. Interest. I mean, Feynman is classically an example of somebody who was really focused on physics, but liked bongo drumming and right. all, all kinds of other stuff. <laughs> right. So, so you're not going to be giving a TED talk about the the personality, the perfect personality for scientific discovery. You have this range of personality types that in science that match what you'll find in the general public. You know, the humanity as a whole. Science. You know, any any person can conceivably be a great. Scientist, it's not clear that you need to be this, you know, incredibly huge ego. It's my way or the highway. Sometimes that can be incredibly important. I mean, Einstein had a very powerful ego, and he really dedicated himself to doing his problems, really without fear or favor for what other people would say, and that led him to do brilliant work for twenty years. 
And I think a lot of people would say it led him to do very little important work for the last 20 or 30 years of his life. So even in a single lifetime, the same personality type can lead you to great things and lead you to a backwater. Um, you know, Marie Curie was focused and intense. Um, Feynman was focused and intense, but he also played the bongo drums and drank, you know, hung out in strip clubs. So, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's, this is a human endeavor and all the, glories and ailments that human beings are heir to can be found in very successful scientists and the not so successful ones too. I mean, remember there's a, you know, uh, half of all scientists are below average, right? You know, it's the old joke. So it's, it's, it's right. That's right. It, that's right. You know, I, yeah. I think this gets to an interesting, interesting point though. And that is that, you know, we do have this tendency to want to think that there is some, some secret or some personality secret. And it, it reminds me of the way that that people, when they were looking for Vulcan, were so easily led astray and how we sort of can be so hindered by our romanticism sometimes of things and, and how we want them to be. So I'm thinking in particular of how Leverrier, you know, each time he retold Les Carbeaux's tale. So Les Carbeaux was this gentleman um, physician in the country, right, who was also an amateur astronomer who claimed that he had found Vulcan. And he managed to convince Leverrier. And sort of each time he retold the story, it became, you know, even grander. And it became this sort of hero's epic. And I just wonder, you know, what made it so easy for people to convince themselves that they'd seen Vulcan? And, and there was this whole, like, planet fever, right, that sort of struck at this time. I, that's right. I mean, I think we, for, we forget, as we should, I mean, it's a long time ago, but the discovery of the planet Neptune was a huge cultural event. I mean, a world-spanning cultural event. The idea that human reason, working just with a few observations of a very distant object, Uranus, and you know, dedicated and brilliant calculation, could conjure up a whole new, you know, member of our solar system, a real, you know, it's sort of like a change in the, in the environment in which we live in this sort of grand sense, but that you could do that out of the power of the human mind. That in the middle of the 19th century was an incredibly powerful, uh, you know, just, just sort of affirmation of possibility. You know, I think it's a legitimate comparison to say, you know, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, that was a globally significant event. Lots of people saw it, were moved by it, saw a difference in human possibility. Neptune was kind of like that. And, and when you flash forward and you have the same person who experienced that triumph, whose life was transformed by having made that discovery, uh, coming up with a very similar thing, you know, I think for Leveria himself is, you know, so what do you do for an encore after you discover Neptune? Well, you do it again, and there's Vulcan. I mean, Vulcan was very important to him personally, clearly. And I think that for the people who then sort of took his results and went out and looked for Vulcan and, and persuaded themselves that they had seen it, I think something of that sort of sense that, you know, human beings are capable of, of you know, conjuring up worlds out of whole cloth. I mean, that's such a grand thing. It's such an exciting thing. You know, we have that kind of excitement now in a, in a I think, more diffused way because everything is more diffused in today's media environment. But with exoplanets, I mean, when you when when somebody proposes Planet Nine, this this giant planet that's supposedly on the far outskirts of uh, outskirts of our solar system, that's exciting. When we discover the possibility of you know liquid water on planets around other stars, which 
there's been some news about lately. That's exciting. The idea that we may expand our, our you know, the biological in- universe we live in. These are amazing things, and they move people, and you want them to be true, right? Right. That, that gets at it, right? It's like we want, we want so much for these to be true. We want to see these things, and that can be so compelling and so powerful. It's, you know, people do science for all kinds of reasons. I mean, I think the most often, the one I've heard most often is when you make a discovery, big one, small one, doesn't matter, you know, that scientist knows for a little while, something that no one else in the world today, no one else throughout all of history has known. And, you know, that's, you know, that's a better drug than you can get from out of any, you know, any backyard lab. Let me tell you. I mean, it's just, that's, Oh, I imagine. Yeah. I imagine. Yeah. So Tom, I wanted to ask you about, about your own interest here. Um, what was the genesis of this book? Because, you know, the story was out there. It was known. You haven't, it wasn't like you're the only person to know about Vulcan. And yet you sort of here you've turned it into this delightful form, which, which really, you know, as I said earlier, contained these lessons that really transcend the story itself. Um, I guess really what I'm asking is, Tom, how did you catch Vulcan fever? <laughs> well, it was really quite simple. I, I, I spent a lot of time working on Einstein. I made a, a two-hour, I co-produced, a co- I wrote and co-produced a, a two-hour Nova film about Einstein. I then wrote a long, long, long uh, book about Einstein. And, uh, and you know, Einstein clearly plays a role in the story. What happened was while I was working on my book, I got to the point where Einstein has finally, after eight years, got to, got to his final form of the, the theory of relativity. And just before he puts the last finishing touches on, on the theory, he... he um, he does that calculation to find the orbit of Mercury just dropping out of this new theory. And he wrote to friends, and I dug this up as I was doing my research, that this, this you know, seeing Mercury's orbit come out perfectly just from his equations moved him to, you know, he said he had palpitations. I mean, his heart shook in his chest, and he couldn't work for a couple of days and all that, you know. And when I read that, I said to myself, that, you know, Einstein was a pretty unemotional I mean, he didn't. He, I think he was a very emotional guy, but he didn't express emotions. He didn't write them down that way very often. Um, and and so I put. I said, that's that's strange. Why would you know a, a quite simple, relatively speaking, calculation, and you know a seemingly minor thing, this sort of wobble in this planet Mercury? Why why would this move him so? And you know, when I was working on all that Einstein stuff, you know, I didn't really have time to dive deeply into it, but I stuck that into my hip pocket, and you know, literally ten years later or more, I came back to it and said, you know, I haven't answered my question yet. Uh, I want to know. And I, that thread pulled me back into the story of Vulcan directly. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So that you sort of went through that process you described earlier that, that Einstein said of just, you know, spending time, you know, having that, that idea sort of, uh, you know, percolating in the back of your mind, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it was there, and I would, you know, as over the years, I picked up a little bit more knowledge about Vulcan and this, that, and the other thing, but um, I really hadn't dived into, into, you know, the roots of the story. I didn't know anything about 19th century astronomy. I didn't know the details. Um, I certainly didn't know that, you know, uh, Edison, you know, Thomas Edison was an eclipse hunter or all the funny little grace notes in the book, but, um, but the fact that I couldn't explain to myself why Einstein got so excited about this one 
in some senses, you know, just really incredibly minor note in his, you know, extraordinary career, you know, that's what it, it, it just, it just sort of tugged at me. And it really just opened up this amazing window, didn't it, to the whole, the whole process. And, and it probably informed uh, some of the stories that you knew about Einstein as well, right? It gave them a, a extra layer. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things with Einstein is, is that people always want to know, and I certainly was a big part of my own motivation in studying him, is, you know, what made him tick? You know, he is an extraordinary figure. He did do remarkable things, and he worked in a way that basically, you know, it's very hard to imagine having anyone having the same kinds of, of, of individual solitary breakthroughs that he did. And so you want to know how he did it and what he did. And, and a lot of my work on Einstein was also in some ways trying to understand that particular, that one man's process of science. So it wasn't a big leap to think of this story as, a, as a, an illustration for how science does and doesn't work or how much the way science works uh, you know, sort of diverges from our myths of science in its method and its progress. Absolutely. And I'll just admit that that's so much of what drew me to this, this story. And in fact, um, I, I had a copy of the book. I hadn't read it yet. And then I saw it, I actually saw it mentioned on a listserv I belong to that looks at evidence-based medicine. And so someone there was recommending it as a great tale about how the scientific process works. And I thought, wow, I really do need to read this book right away. Um, we need to get wrapping up here. And I, I wanted to end by asking you a question. And that is, um, you know, we're living in a time when science has become somewhat polarized. There's a lot of questioning of, you know, who should have the authority to decide what's true. And I just wonder, you know, this story really shows how science is so often wrong on the way to being right. And I wonder, how do we talk about this? How do we discuss it? How do we present this in a way um, that sort of shows science for what it is without sort of opening it up to the doubt creators who might come in and, and use the uncertainty as a way, you know, to, uh, I guess, promote vested interests? You know, the idea that science is never entirely right is critical to science's ability to self-correct. You always know that, first of all, nature in the end wins. If nature says your best idea is wrong, then sadly it's wrong. And that e even if it's hard to figure out what the next move may be, eventually you're going to find some way around the fact that nature has already told you you got to think again. Um, science's results are therefore always provisional. There is some uncertainty, a kind of uncertainty, in the way that science makes statements about the world. But the thing that I think is terribly misused, it's maliciously and deliberately misused in our current political process in all kinds of fields. I mean, obviously climate change, but in many, many other areas of concern, um, is the idea that because the limits of science, the edge of science, the edge of our knowledge is always inherently provisional and uncertain and, and subject to, to revision, that we don't know the things we really do know, Right. And, you know, it's important, even in the Vulcan story, Newton's theory works great when you don't have a great big mass of the sun, sort of right plunk in the middle of the picture. I mean, it's still taught in schools, right? I mean, I, I learned Newton's laws in high school. It's right. And, you know, if you want to, you know, uh, explain an apple's fall, 
Newton's theory will, you know, Einstein's theory is more formally correct, but Newton's theory will actually solve you the problem much more quickly and, and for your purposes just as accurately. If you want to shoot a cannon, you know, Newton's theory is what you use. You don't use Einstein's, you know, shape of space-time to figure out where the cannonball is going to land. If you want to send, you know, astronauts to the moon, you send them with Newton's theory. You don't worry about the curvature of space-time between the Earth and the moon. Um, the things we know, we really know. We really know in climate change that carbon dioxide is a gas with certain physical properties. Those properties you know, include transmitting visible light and absorbing infrared light, which is what drives the, um, the warm, you know, it's, it, which is what gives carbon dioxide its capacity to change the energy budget of the universe and uh, energy budget of the earth and warm the surface of the earth. We know that really well. We know how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and how that's changing. We know that really well because we measure it directly. Those things don't go away because the finest details, the question of how much sunlight the clouds bounce back to, to the sky and this kind of thing are not as, as firmly known. Um, and so the use of uncertainty to say all of science is uncertain is a rhetorical trick used by people for political or financial, you know, political purposes or financial gain or what have you, and obscures the fact that while there is always things we don't know, there are always provisional, uh, you know, provisional facts that we think we know but aren't sure of, and there are always mistakes that can be made, there's lots and lots and lots of stuff that we really understand really, really well. You know, the, 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 the mobile phone that sits in your pocket knows where you are because general relativity is rock solid at the levels needed to help, you know, uh, GPS systems work, right? It's not, uh, you know, yes, we don't have an ultimate theory of gravity. We haven't resolved gravity and quantum mechanics, but that doesn't mean that our current theory of gravity isn't really, really good for all kinds of practical things we do here on earth right now. And that's true across, you know, all the uh, types of endeavor that scientists are you know, working on every day. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should we should just make a new rule that if you're going to deny science, you can't use any of it either. Right. That might change right. change some people around. Huh. So, Tom Levinson, thank you so much for being here. It's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much. It's been great. All right. That was 538's Christy Ashwanden speaking with Thomas Levinson, author of The Hunt for Vulcan. Our next episode of Sparks will feature a discussion based on a book called Flavor, The Science of Our Most Neglected Sense by Bob Holmes. We encourage you to grab a copy and read along with us. Thanks to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson was our editor. Thanks to Annie Chelsea for help with this episode. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed, so please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcasts at 538.com. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.